0: Well, good morning again. We get to follow Jesus together. You know, that's the beautiful thing about family is we are following him together. Uh, Coming here, uh, we are part of the same family. We're part of the same kingdom. We serve the same God. And it is a joy to be with you, to worship together with you this morning. Uh, If anyone came in after introductions, I'm Pastor Laramie from Central Baptist Church in Bend, Oregon. And it is a delight to be here with you folks. And um, I will be able to introduce and give some more details about uh, my life, my ministry, uh, my family later this evening. in the evening service will do a short presentation before the message. Um, But one of the things that Pastor Jeff asked when I came was simply that I would share my heart uh, for ministry, uh, heart for church planting, and what God is using uh, my family and I and and the folks in Bend, Oregon uh, to do for his kingdom. And for the morning service, though, I want to share with you really, if I were to boil down the lessons God has taught me, over the 10 years that I've been out there, there's one particular lesson that stands really clear in my mind, and that's what I want to share. This morning is really going to share a lesson uh, that I have been taught, and I will say continue to be taught. It's not fully learned yet, if you will, as in I know the principle, uh, but I'm not always as consistent in applying it as I should. Now, that principle is simply going to be this trust Jesus Okay, trust Jesus Uh, in church planting, in in ministry in general, whether you're in a a larger well established church or in church planting, the reality is ministry it's unpredictable Um, God knows the end he knows the end from the beginning he knows the path and the reality is the path often follows something very different than you had planned Um, and that has definitely been the case for us and what he has consistently taught me or reminded me was this lesson, trust me. Trust me. You can trust me. The opening verses of the Bible describe to us the initial creative work of God. All right? That's in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, we all know these verses, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Right? And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. One of the first things God created was water. Right? The life-sustaining fluid that was necessary for life, he is its creator. He has authority over the water just as he has authority over all created things. We'll see why that's important for us to trust him in a moment. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless the blessed time in God's word. Father, I thank you that we can come to you this morning through your word. We can hear from you this morning in your word. Lord, we can hear the message you have for us, that we can trust you. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be open, that we'd be humble before you, that we would be teachable, willing to listen, willing to heed. But then, Father, that we would also uh, be filled with the joy and delight, contentment, the satisfaction that comes from trusting you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Intentional Storms. Intentional Storms, we're really going to be looking at Luke 8, through 26. But I started with Genesis 1, 1 through 2 to talk about water. And I want to hear from you real quick. Think about it for a moment. What are some of the water-related events in Scripture that show forth God's power that come to your mind? All right, there was the flood. I think I heard the Red Sea. All right, the Jordan River. All right, Jesus walking on water. All right, yeah, yes, yeah, the coming of the storm. Water on the rock. A lot of times, God used water to picture and to illustrate his power, but also his, his salvation. You know, maybe the first... Event that we see after creation going through the history we come to Noah, right? And there's Noah and his family and they are saved from the water through the ark which God had Noah build. And God brings judgment upon sin and the the fountains of the deep open up and the rains fall and Noah and his family is saved. The Red Sea, we had talked about that. And here was the nation of Israel, and they're leaving Egypt, right? In the exodus, and they come to the edge of the sea, and they're boxed in, and God saves them through the midst of the sea. And then what happens after the Egyptians follow? Right? The sea closes in, God gives deliverance over their enemies through the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, 21 through 22, we read about that. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord causes the sea to go back by a strong east wind all night. May the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Right? God's deliverance. In fact, if you read through the Psalms. There are time and again that we see God described as having power over water. Psalm 106.9, he rebuked the Red, the, the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, right? That was how the psalmist describes the Exodus account. And then later in Israel's history, we find a similar event with the Jordan River. And here, the priests were required to actually step into the water of the Jordan. They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, And then God stopped up the waters and allowed for the nation to walk through on dry ground. And it was another picture of God's salvation as the people reminded of the Red Sea crossing. As I mentioned, Psalms, not only do they talk about the Red Sea crossing and God's power over water, but here's a few. Uh, Here's another description that the psalmist says in Psalm 29, 3 through 4. He says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Just generally, he is all powerful and over the waters. You can look at Psalm 65, Psalm 89, Psalm 107, and have other instances where God is described as having power over the waters. So God's control, his authority over water is a vivid reminder that God is God. That he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of all things. That he alone controls the seas, the winds, the waves. Now throughout the years man has done many things to direct the current of the water. Even tap into the energy of its flowing. Whether it's through canals or dams or power plants, or mills, but the truth is we are limited in controlling it. Every year we hear reports of hurricanes, tsunamis, tropical storms, and even droughts, where we see again that we have no control over water. So it's abundantly clear that the one who created the waters is the only one who has power and authority over water. God is God. Now this is an important backdrop as we come to our passage here in Luke. Luke chapter 8. And the passage is going to bring us face to face with Jesus. And it's a passage that teaches us to trust Jesus. To trust him. Now, truthfully, we're going to break it down into two parts, two lessons that strengthen our faith. And the first lesson that we need to learn is this, you need Jesus, all right? That's the first lesson. And the second lesson is simply this, you can trust Jesus, right? You need him, you can trust him. Let's begin by looking at the narrative as it unfolds in, starting in verse 22 of Luke chapter 8, you need Jesus, and let's look at this narrative together. So verse 22 says, Now it came to pass on a certain day. If you look, this was on the evening after Jesus had spent much time teaching. Okay? Very much like the youth rally on Friday night. All right? We spent time playing games and teaching. It comes tonight. And there, they were along the sea. And he went into a ship with his disciples. Now I want to stop here for a moment because here... At this time in Jesus' ministry, his reference to disciples definitely included the 12 disciples, those who were following him closely. But there was also a crowd of people that were his disciples, that were his students. And we don't know all who are with him, but if you look at Mark's account of this narrative, we find that there were, there were multiple ships that were going across the sea with him. So it could have been a decent sized crowd, other boats being affected as well. But we're going to focus in on one particular ship that has Jesus, probably as close as disciples in, in it with him. And so he tells them, the disciples, let us go over onto the other side of the lake. Now this is the Sea of Galilee. It's on the eastern side of the region of Galilee. The lake is about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. Um, covers about the area of Boise and Meridian. Okay? It's a decent-sized lake. And it was evening. He had just spent... The day ministering, his disciples are leaving Capernaum, a town on the northwestern side of the lake. They're going to sail across to the eastern side to the city of the Garrisones. That wasn't directly across, it was probably about a five mile trek, though. And so they launched forth, we're told. These are fishing boats. Fishing was Peter, James, John, Andrew, right? Their business. And even though they had left that to follow Jesus, now their boats had become, you know, assets in ministry. Helped Jesus get around, even preach from them from time to time. And these boats were not, you know, little dinghies. These were 20 to 30 feet long in length. They were sizable ships to cross this lake upon. Jesus was there with the disciples, some of whom were experienced sailors on this particular sea. This is where they did their fishing. And it was night. Now, that's no problem. In fact, most of the shipping, the fishing was done at night. So this was, this was an easy cruise, if you will. And so Jesus is tired from a long day of ministry. Pastor Phil knows that, right? How much sleep did you get? Oh, I got like a solid four and a half. <laughs> four and a half hours? Oh, okay. I was thinking it's so four and a half minutes. But uh, four and a half, okay. Yeah, you did a lot better than I thought. So no, yeah. All right. But you, uh, exhausted from ministry. It's night, the boats in the hands of experienced sailors, verse 23. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, this is probably the first marvelous thing we see in this passage. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh, right? And he falls asleep. God never slumbers nor sleeps, but Jesus took on humanity and he needed rest. A beautiful picture of our Savior as he ministers, as he served. He's exhausted. He's the word as John 1.14 says. God the Son that was made flesh to dwell among us. He had to eat and sleep just like we do. The truth is he faced the same limitations that we faced. He faced the same trials. He faced the same temptations. And so here he needs sleep and he goes and lays down. And so he's there, fast asleep, back in the boat. And we read, there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. Here's a problem arises that is out of the disciples' control. A sudden storm that there was unexpected sweeps down over the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Even today, it's now if for the locals, Lake Kinneret there. You can... If you want to look at it, the beautiful thing about the internet and Google is you can go and look at some of these ancient places just by typing it in. So I would encourage you to do that, have a visual of what the Sea of Galilee looks like. But the topography of the lake lends itself to violent storms. In fact, the lake lies about 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountainous landscape and especially notable are the Golan Heights. And they're on the east side of the lake. And you would have cold wind that would blow off the heights from the east. And they would collide with the the warmer water over the lake. And some of the air as it was coming down over the lake. Would kind of funnel through the different ravines and pick up speed. And you would have this collision of air masses and violent winds. That would just sweep across the lake. And you would have these. Quick, sudden, terrible storms. And we read here that the winds are so strong that it's, it's whipping up water. The boats are being tossed back and forth that, that they're in jeopardy, right? Progress towards that eastern shore is greatly hindered. And, and the swells, the waves begin to break over the side of the boat. The boats, these are sizable boats, are filling with water. So much so that it becomes apparent that the boat, the lives of those who are in it are in, in, in danger. And even these experienced fishermen realized that this was a situation that was out of their control, could even easily result in the loss of life. They were probably strong swimmers. We're not told how far they were out in the lake, but it must have been far enough that they realized that this was dangerous, that we're not just going to swim back to shore. And the beautiful thing about this passage is scripture does not deny the fact that they were actually in danger, right? We know the end of the story and we're like, oh, you know, don't sweat it, right? But the truth is, as it's presented here, scripture tells us they, they were in real danger. From a human perspective, this had all the elements of a horrendous disaster. And also, from the human perspective, there was nothing they could do to save the boats, there was nothing they could do. Potentially even to save their life, if you will, their hands were in the mercy of the sea. We're given this narrative for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is this. You are meant to relate to this story. We all are. We can all identify with the fear that these disciples were experiencing that night. Now maybe you have not been on a boat in the middle of the sea with a great storm and you feared sinking. But we all know what it's like to be in a physical circumstance where we feel helpless. Where our circumstance is spiraling out of control. Just as disciples are helpless here. And the situation might result in our harm. Maybe your loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal disease of which there is no sure cure. Maybe you are facing a financial problem and the funds are non-existent. Maybe it's a once good relationship has so deteriorated now. You're doing everything in your power to mend it, but that beloved person just seems farther and farther away. Or maybe it's a job that you have had for many years and it's threatened to no longer exist. Life has a way of constantly bringing us into circumstances that we have no power over. Sometimes that is, even as a church planter, a partner in ministry suddenly has to leave the, the ministry. And sometimes that is, you know, COVID and it limits in what you're able to do as far as buildings and meetings. and. But look, each of these situations, they leave us helpless. They can leave us fearful because all of our plans seem to crumble around us. And some of those helpless situations we find ourselves in might even come because maybe, maybe we did make a non-wise choice. And some of these situations come, yes, because we chose to even sin. But it doesn't, remove the reality of these dangerous situations we find ourselves in. In fact, what we read here, though, is they often come when we're obedient. In fact, it was the disciples' obedience that led them to this dangerous position. Right? Jesus said, we need to go to the other side, you know, sail across. I'm going to go and sleep. And so they obeyed. And now they find themselves in the middle of something that wasn't planned. Something that could completely destroy them. See, even when we're walking with the Lord, he often leads us through trials, right? We like Psalm 23 because it talks about the Lord is our good shepherd. And he leads us beside the still waters, right? The green pastures. He restores our soul. But he's also the good shepherd that leads through where? The valley of the shadow of death. Who led there? It was the good shepherd, right? He often leads us through the trials. In his wisdom, in his goodness, he leads us into the storms of life. What may seem circumstantial are in truth part of God's plan and path for us. He leads us into the circumstances that strip away the control that we think we have. These are intentional trials, purposeful trials. They leave us helpless. They, they leave us facing the fear of the unknown. And it's in those moments of life that the Lord teaches us that we need Him. Because if everything's going well, we, we tend to begin to think that we don't need Him so much. At least we don't depend on Him as we should. But the trials of life are designed to increase our faith. The Lord is glorified when his people rely wholly on him. Trials make us do that. James 1, 2 says My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Various trials. Knowing this that the trying of your faith, what? Worketh patience, right? So what we tell the disciples, rejoice, the storm is good. Right? They can't see that yet. So you might be called to walk through a very difficult time in your life when when all seems to be crashing in around you and there's nothing you can do. And it's in those moments that the Lord is calling you to trust, to trust in Him. Now, we're, we're to trust in Him in all circumstances, yes. But faith is strengthened when it is tested. It becomes stronger when we see our need for God. But also when we see His power on display. And so it was be here for the disciples that well. Well, after it's apparent that the situation is completely dire, it's out of their control. Verse 24, so, And they came to him, to Jesus. They awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. So they cried out to Jesus. Now we look at this and we say, This was the right response, right? They finally got it. Who knows how much effort they put into you before going to Jesus. They realize it's horrible. They say, Master, Master, we perish. And the truth is, this is the right response. But we see it wasn't so much a plea for help as it was a a, a warning, right? When they come, they're like, Jesus, look, you need to wake up because we're all going to die, All right, You you probably should be warned. We're not just going to let you go down sleeping. You might want to wake up for this. You know, we need you, but Really, can you help us? There was no cry for help. They didn't have a sure faith in that moment, but the situation had turned them to their need for him. And truthfully, sometimes the trials of life, even if our faith is weak, you know, we cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We might wonder if God can help, but we still need to come to him. And this is really a comfort to us because sometimes our faith does waver. We, we, we want everybody to think our faith is really strong, but let's be honest with ourselves. Our faith at times do, does waver. Sometimes we cry out to God concerning our s- circumstance, and we're concerned that he's actually overlooked us. But Jesus still cares for us, even if our faith wavers, because the trial is making us look to him. So here's Jesus in the midst of the raging storm, the crashing waves, the frantic disciples, and Jesus is calmly sleeping in the back of the boat. He knew full well that his time was not at hand, right? He knew full well that they needed to get to the other side of the lake. That was the will of the Father. Jesus knew that the situation was not unknown to the Father. In fact, this was the Father's plan. He didn't fear the raging sea. From God's perspective, actually, everything was moving along just as planned. We're on track. Things are working out. So even when the disciples' faith wavered, the one who controlled all things was still in control. And that's what you and I need to see. Because in the midst of trials, when all of our efforts have been exhausted, and even when our faith wavers, God is still in control. So here... Here's just a wonderful truth. God's sovereignty is not dependent on your faith. Praise the Lord for that, right? Thankfully, God's sovereignty, his plans, his power, his purpose is not dependent on your faith. Think of it this way. A child is often very momentarily focused, aren't they? They don't really think much about the future. Uh, They don't think much past the immediate Um, if they are hungry, they want to eat now, right? Like right now. You can tell them dinner's going to be ready in 15 minutes, and that doesn't necessarily suffice. If they want to play outside, they think they have to do it now. If they skin their elbow, they don't want to wash out the wound. Why? Because it hurts right now, right? I don't want that pain. So even if the child you know, doesn't believe the food's going to be ready in 30 minutes or the nap is needed or the wound needs to be cleaned, the reality is these things are either going to happen or need to take place. And especially in the, the case of a wound, you have a child there and a parent, the loving parent's going to say, you know what? I know that this is going to hurt, but that wound needs to be cleaned now. Even if it hurts now. So a loving parent moves in that little life to bring about the best end. Whether it's the nap or brings them food at the right time or cleans the wound. And so it is in our relationship with God. Whether we believe him or not, God is still in control. And he's still in control of our circumstances. And he is going to bring about in our path his designed end. So, trials are brought into our lives to reveal our need for Jesus. So, that first lesson is we need Jesus, right? We need Jesus. If you're going through a trial today, that's one of the lessons you need to see and learn from it because you need Him, you need your God. But also, we can see we can trust Jesus. Middle of verse 24. So, after it becomes apparent that the circumstance is hopeless, disciples wake up Jesus. Then He arose. We read and rebuke the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. I like how undramatic the account is before us. Jesus simply wakes up and he tells the wind and the waves to stop, and immediately the wind stops, the wave stops, the boat settles in the water. We're not told, but I just can imagine probably everybody else is quiet. All the frantic screaming and scurrying about is done. And there's this eerie calm that just settles. And so Jesus speaks to break the silence in verse 25. And he said unto them, where's your faith? Where's your faith? This may have been a mild rebuke, but it really was this lesson. You can trust me. In every situation. Right? The disciples had seen Jesus to countless miracles at this point. And yet when their lives were on, their li- was on the line, their faith wavered. And Jesus simply restates the obvious lesson from the trial. Where's your faith? You can trust me. This is the greatest purpose for trials in our lives, to teach us that we can trust our God. But how did the disciples respond? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying to one another, What manner of man is this? For he commanded even the winds and the water, and they obeyed him. See, a moment ago, they were afraid of the storm outside the boat, and now they're afraid of the Lord inside the boat, right? But remember where we started. These, are, these disciples, these would be disciples who were familiar. They were from Jewish homes. They were familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. They were familiar with the stories in, that describe God as the one who created the waters. The one who had supreme authority and power over the waters. And here, Jesus simply wakes up calmly. And he, with one word, the waters cease raging. The sor- storm stops. And in that moment, the disciples realize that they're not in the presence of an ordinary human being. They're not even in the presence of an extraordinary human being. They're in the presence of God. There's only one they knew who could have power over water like that. And their response is the proper response of those who find themselves in the presence of God. They fear, they marvel. Now, there probably was a little bit of physical fear here. I mean, they were in the same boat as God. But this goes deeper. This is that proper fear of the Lord, that humble awe, that reverence for the Holy One, that knowledge that this was God. He was with them. And whatever he ordained or let come about would indeed happen. Whether that was the storm or the calm. The, water, the water's power was limited to what God allowed. And they sat there in awe of Jesus. And they asked each other, who is this? The wind and the waters obey him. They, they knew the answer. This is a wonderful affirmation of the incarnation that God the Son became a man. Jesus, fully God, fully man. The, the New Testament makes this abundantly clear to us in passages like this, as well as in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, who is the image of the invisible God, right? Talking about Jesus, the firstborn or the preeminent one of every creature, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Right? Our Savior, Jesus Christ, yes, was a man, but he was also the creator God. That's why he had power over the water. Ephesians 1, 22, Jesus was raised from the dead, seated at God, the Father's hand in the heavenly places. And so verse 21 of Ephesians 1 says, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion in every name that's named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. When we come to answer this question that the disciples declared, who is this one, right? Who is this one? Who's this man? Who is Jesus? We must look at how he's revealed to us in the Bible. He is God. This is the foundation of your faith. This is the foundation of my faith. This is the reason that we can trust him. And when we see him as God, we are led to that proper response of fear, reverence, awe, humility before him. This is how our, strength is. our faith is strengthened. It is strengthened when we come to fear God. When we come to fear our Savior. When we come to know Him deeper. When, we, when our knowledge of Him and our relationship with Him is richer. Because when we see Him in all of His wonder, we have that proper response of fear before Him. But that leads to faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, we know, of wisdom. It's also the beginning of faith the beautiful thing that god gives us is he calls us to faith but it's not a blind faith is it we're called to trust the god of the universe who has made himself known to us the trials of life are are designed to turn our gaze from off of ourselves to the supreme lord Trials, hardships, difficulties must move our hearts to cling to God. Now, this story, this narrative, does not guarantee that God will resolve all of your trials, all right? To result in physical deliverance. That's not the point. You might still have the disease, right? You might have the financial loss or the broken relationship. Now by his grace, sometimes he chooses to give us those physical deliverances. But also by his grace, he might simply give us what we need to sustain us through the trial, the disappointment, the grief, and the loss. And other times, the deliverance comes after the shipwreck, right? Talk to Paul about that one. Sometimes the shipwreck happens, and then God delivers you through the wreckage of the ship. But the point of this account is this. Jesus is God, and he can be trusted. He is saying through his word this morning to you, you can trust me. Look to me. I don't know what God is going to call you to walk through what he's called you to walk through, or what you're going to face even this next week. You may, might get some very difficult news. Or trial might come. But I assure you that there are folks here today, whether it's you personally, that are going through some very hard times. But here's what we remember. The Lord is with you he is with us in the midst of the trial and he is the one who actually orchestrated the trial to strengthen your faith. This is why Peter can instruct us in 1 Peter 5:7: cast all your cares on him for he cares for you, right? He's the one that's actually walking you through that trial. With church planting, with ministry, there's a lot of reward. There's a lot of great things when you see people's hearts change and transformed into the image of Christ. But there can be also a lot of times of disappointment and pain or loss. We've experienced both in church planting. And the truth is there's been some trials that have, have kind of shaken our faith and even shaken our resolve, if you will, in saying, is this really where the Lord has us to plant a church? The Lord has consistently said yes and given us the grace to go through the trial. But that's where I said ministry a lot of times it affects my faith more than it sometimes affects those it seems that I'm ministering to. I'm realizing that church planning is a path that God has me on to make me into the image of Christ. Yes, it is to see souls saved. Yes, it is to invest in his kingdom. Yes, it is to help others along that same journey. But the reality is, it's not about me doing those things. It's about what the Lord can do in my heart and then to others. The truth is, even in ministry, maybe you're not in church planning, but maybe you're caring for somebody else in the auditorium here this morning. And it's hard. Maybe you're helping somebody else walk through a trial or a physical disease, and maybe it's, it's, it's becoming a burden for you. The truth is, you're bearing somebody else's burden, and it's becoming a trial. It's becoming hard. God has a purpose for even the hard times in ministry. Maybe it is that neighbor that's nearby you, and maybe you don't get either, they don't like you a whole lot for whatever reason. Maybe it's simply because you're a Christian. Or maybe it's a neighbor that does like you, but you just long for them to know you The Lord and 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 they just are turned off by the gospel. There's a spiritual trial. You love them, you long for them. Maybe it's a maybe it's a parent or a child that doesn't know the Lord. It's a trial you're walking through. Oftentimes ministry is hard that way. But we can trust God as we continue to faithfully serve Him and even when our plans and our hopes and our dreams have not come to the place that we had thought they were going to or at least in the time frame we thought they were going to happen in or the way it was supposed to look we trust that we're in the boat in the middle of the storm but that storm is purposeful it's intentional and we can trust Jesus now maybe you're here today and you're not a believer i don't know your heart And after we read this account and we looked at Jesus, maybe you before have looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been skeptical. Maybe you didn't really believe that he was God. Maybe you never believed his message. Or maybe you have liked Jesus, okay? You like the idea of Jesus, but you're still living in unbelief, right? You don't really need him. But this account leaves you with a decision because... If Jesus is God, and we've seen clearly that he is, then what he says is true. And what his word declares is true. And God's word is clear that we all have sinned. That we have all rebelled against God. And we know what the wages of sin is. We know what the end of sin is. God is holy, righteous, and just. And that is... Judgment, that means judgment for our sins as sinners. We're estranged from God. We're no longer in relationship with God. And the just judgment, we love justice, as long as it's to somebody else, right? But the just judgment for our sins is that we would face an eternity in judgment under the wrath of God for our sins. That is good and that is just. But God in his love and mercy also cared enough to not just say hey you know what I'm going to accept you as you are and I'm just going to, I'm just going to love you it doesn't matter that's the God that the world wants to believe in that's not, that's not love that's, that's a real fickle kind of love true love says you know what you offended me but I'm going to take your judgment I'll take your place that's what Jesus did He came as a man, took on human flesh. And he walked the perfect life that you and I could never have lived. And then he went to the cross and he died in your place. And he took your sin, he took your judgment for you. And in those hours that he hung on the cross, God the Father poured out an eternity of divine wrath on God the Son for you. In your place. He died, but three days later, in just a few weeks, we get to celebrate Easter. We're looking forward to that. And on that day, he rose from the dead. And we know that he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father today. And he has life, and he has righteousness, and he has forgiveness to give to anyone who repents and believes on him as their Lord and Savior, right? Trust Jesus. You need him, trust him. You can trust Jesus today. If you have yet to believe on Jesus, the truth is he's been orchestrating your life so that you would hear his call of mercy today as well. Now, let me just draw your attention to the final verse that we're going to look at. That's verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gerardines, which is over against Galilee. Alright, Now there was ministry for Jesus to do there but Luke felt the need under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put this little verse in there. It simply says, and they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. So after God's purpose was fulfilled there in the middle of the lake the boat sailed on across the lake to the very shore that Jesus had intended to go. Remember he had told the disciples we need to go there. And that's where they ended up. The voyage along the way, though, was designed to communicate. It was designed to teach much. But the end was already determined. It was needful to cross the lake. It was needful for the disciples to go with Jesus through the storm. And so though you and I might be called to go through some difficult times in this life, we can be assured that Jesus will see us through. Simply this, trust Jesus. He's leading you through this life, so trust the one who's determining your path.